So last week we started the beginning of the end of our series on grace. So we started with 1 Peter and we started talking about growing in grace. How God has lavished His favor on you. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. There's nothing you have done for it. God has lavished unmerited favor upon you. And we started to examine what that meant. And we even took a little break and looked at Galatians and and how Paul emphasizes God's grace in Galatians and how he emphasizes you can't earn it. So we talked a lot about how we can mature in this grace that God has given us. And then we jumped over to Mark. And we looked how Jesus is greater than. And that's still part of our series on grace because Jesus is greater than, well, anything you can imagine. He's even greater than your own idea of who Jesus is. He's greater than that. And that's what our grace is all based upon, is Jesus. And so now we're turning back towards 2 Peter, and I think this is a great way to close this because we've been looking at some some cultural issues as well, right? And as we we studied God's grace and growing in God's grace, we also wanted to look at, hey, there's some cultural issues going on right now, and in America, we're not a persecuted group, but it won't take long for it to happen one day. You know, I'm not saying that we're persecuted, but it it, it could happen very easily. So we want to prepare our hearts for that. And how do we prepare our hearts for that? Well, we grow in God's grace and we stand firm in His grace. But oftentimes what happens, and I think this is why Peter wrote this letter, is his first letter is about God's grace. And there were these external pressures, right? There was persecution. Persecution that we don't even understand. Nero was burning Christians alive. That was persecution. So he writes that first letter to encourage them to grow in God's grace in the midst of persecution. But then what happens in the chaos of persecution? False teachers arise. And we're seeing tensions right now in our culture where where I want to consider us a persecuted group, but there is tension. And in the midst of that tension, there's some chaos. And in the midst of that chaos, false teachers arise. And so Peter writes his second letter telling them to stand in grace. There are external pressures that are trying to get you to turn from God's grace and there are internal pressures. Internal being inside the church that want to get you to to turn from God's grace. And so he writes this letter, and and he starts off with this big chunk of theology. That God has given you everything you need to live a life of godliness. You have everything you need. And, And this whole idea that we have everything that we need, that God has taken us from being dead in our trespasses and sins, and put us in this position that we are now alive together with Him. We're no longer defined by our sin. We are now defined as children of God. That we have been created new. That we've been made righteous. That we've been made holy. That He's given us everything we need. But if you're like me, sometimes that seems, I don't know, 
vague. Like, what does it mean to live a holy life? What does it mean that I'm holy? And, and so God calls me holy, and yet sometimes I return to sin. God calls me holy, but, but sometimes I have outbursts of anger. What does that mean in my life? And sometimes we get lost, and we become stagnant in growing in grace or standing in grace because we're lost in the vagueness of what it means to be holy. Well, thankfully, God knew that that would happen, and so he gave us what I think is kind of a roadmap to get out of the stagnation. That's what we're going to study today in 2 Peter. So turn with me to 2 Peter, if you will. We'll pick up in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, and are, interest, are, and are increasing, they keep you from being effective, ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, let's dig on in. For this reason, the very reason that he has granted us everything we need to live a life of godliness, for this reason, because he has given us all that we need and because he has given us promises, very precious and very great promises, that in the end we can trust his mercy, in the end we can trust his grace, in the end we can trust his love, and in the end we can trust his justice and righteousness. Because of these great promises, therefore, work this out. Right? So for this very reason, because we can trust all that, for this reason, make every effort to supplement. Make every effort. The word here is perispero, and it means to bring about. Making every effort. Bring it about. And this word supplement is where we get the word chorus from. So what would happen in those days is there would be plays that would travel from city to city. But before they could go to that city, they needed a benefactor. And this benefactor would pay for everything for that play to happen. The benefactor would supply everything they needed, the actors would need, for that play to happen. They would supply housing, food, props, everything that play needed. The benefactor would supply. That's what this word means here. So the idea is that our benefactor has supplied everything we need then we need to bring it about. So what would the actors need to do coming into town? The benefactor supplied it. They would need to work it out. They would need to do their part. That's what's going on here. He's saying, look, God has supplied everything you need, everything you possibly need to live a life of godliness, to live a life of holiness. God has supplied. Now you need to live it out. And then he's going to give us what are called, ascend, most theologians call them the ascending steps to living out our faith. 
So we're going to make every effort to supplement your faith, meaning this relationship you have with God, supplement your faith with virtue. This term virtue, can we go to the next slide please? There we go. This term virtue is arete. It's translated as virtue. Sometimes it's translated as goodness or excellence. And it means behavior that is consistent with the essence of which it is. Sometimes you read definitions and you're like, wow, I'm not sure what that even means, right? Like I read that, I was like, what does that even mean? Behavior that is consistent with the essence of which it is? What on earth? I just got lost in the vagueness of that definition. But what's going on here is is essentially virtue means that you are living out what you are. And so so for uh, ancient Romans, you know, if they planted a seed and that seed grew into the thing that they planted, then that would be a virtuous seed. So if you planted a strawberry and your strawberry seed turned into a plant and produced strawberry, then that was a virtuous strawberry seed. It was living out its essence of which it is. So this virtue that we are to supplement our faith with is living out or behavior that is consistent with who we are. We are children of God. We are to supplement our faith with the very essence of being children of God. So the first question that we need to ask in this ascending steps, we're going to have several different questions to ask. The first question is, what is the essence of my position my benefactor has called me to? Your benefactor, God, who has supplied everything you need, has called you to a position. What is the essence of that position? What does it mean to be a child of God? But the second question that has to do with essence is, do I want to live a life consistent with that essence? Do you even want to live like you're a child of God? Do you feel like you've got a get-out-of-hell-for-free ticket, and that's all you want? Hey, guys, I no longer am going to hell. I'm good with living the life I have. Or do you want to live out the position God has placed you in? He's made you holy. He's made you righteous. Do you want to live that out? So that's the first question. Now these are steps, so each one will build upon each other. After you've decided that you want to be virtuous, that you want to live out your your essence, then we get to the next one, which is supplement that essence, that virtue, with knowledge. So let's go to the next slide. So the term knowledge is gnosis, or gnosis. Epigenosco is a word that we've run into a couple different times. We'll run into it again. Epigenosco is relational, intimate knowledge. Gnosis is living out information. For the Second Temple Jew, you didn't really know something until you lived it. So, you know, you could go to school to be a farmer and know, have a bunch of information on how to farm or how to ranch. But it all might seem a little different when you finally get on that farm or you finally get on that ranch. You're like, oh, this is how things really go. My dad was a mechanic by trade. He was a diesel mechanic. And he'd get all these guys. He never went to school, by the way. He he, uh, was kind of self-taught and made his way into certain things. He, He ended up being mentored by a guy that would rebuild transmissions. So he'd rebuild transmissions. By the time he retired, he was the only one in his shop that could rebuild 
a transmission. But he'd get all these guys from school, and he'd say, it's almost like we have to reteach them everything. Because there's one thing, it's one thing to have this information. It's another thing to apply this information all the time. So that's what this gnosis is. It's not just having the information, it's living this information out. So then the next question is, so, so you've answered, yes, I want to live out the essence. God has given me this position of righteousness and holiness. I want to live it out. So then the question is, when you fail, is there knowledge that you're missing? Or have you believed a lie? For example, you might believe a lie that God hasn't actually made you righteous. That God hasn't made you holy. And so when you fell, when you mess up, when you have an outburst of anger, you crawl into a room of shame, and you shame yourself, and you think the only way that you can make yourself right with God is if you just punish yourself enough. Well, there's several lies that you're buying into there, but one of them is that Jesus didn't pay the price. The Jesus' death doesn't actually apply to you, so now you have to go punish yourself again. That's a lie. Jesus paid it all. When you fell, when you mess up, you don't have to go punish yourself again. You can live in His grace. So is there false information that you're believing? So you've decided that you want to live out this essence. The next question is, do I have the correct knowledge? So then you're going to supplement that knowledge with self-control. All right, let's go to the next slide. All right, so self-control, agratia, meaning self-control. It's personal restraint over emotion and desires. Personal restraint over emotion and desires. Anything worthwhile in this life takes self-control. I think about 1 Corinthians where Paul is encouraging them to run the race and he's using the, the games there in Corinth as, as an example. And these runners would, would discipline themselves for 10 months. 10 months of training. Harsh training. They would beat their, he said, they'd beat their bodies into submission. Meaning, they would discipline themselves. They would have self-control. They didn't want to wake up early. But they knew they wanted to win, so they woke up early. They wanted to eat whatever was set in front of them. They also wanted to win the race, so they knew they had to discipline themselves on what they wanted to eat. And then he goes on to talk about how though this crown is perishable, meaning they would discipline themselves for 10 months. They would have restraint over their desires for 10 months just to win a perishable crown. But our crown is imperishable. So we have... We know that we want to live out this virtuous life. We have the correct knowledge. The next step is self-control. Personal restraint over our desires and our emotions. Now, this doesn't mean that your desires and emotions are always bad. It's not saying that you should just always deny yourself any desire ever. God has given us some good desires. My desire for my wife is a good thing. My desire to see my kids coming to know Christ and growing in Christ is a good thing. Those are good desires. But even those desires, if they begin to control me, become bad. 
Desire uncontrolled is wrong. If you don't control your desires, if you don't control your emotions, then your desires and your emotions will begin to control you. I want to say that again because it's so important. If you don't control your emotions and your desires, your emotions and your desires will control you. That's why kids have temper tantrums, right? They're letting their emotions control them. Adults, we may not look like we're having a temper tantrum, but when we let our emotions and our desires control us, that's basically what we're doing. So we have to learn to control our desires. So, we've decided we want to live that virtuous life. We're, we're gaining the knowledge that God has given us. The next step is to start to use self-control to grow in that knowledge. So the question here is, am I in control of my emotions and desires, or do they control me? And I might put in a 3A here. If I indulge in my emotions and desires, is it because I believe a lie? The lie that you might be believing is my desires will make me happy. I have this desire. If I, if I give in to it, it will eventually make me happy. How many affairs have we seen because somebody thought this desire was going to lead to happiness? This woman no longer makes me happy, but that woman will. So this person pursues that desire. And in the end, is heartbreak. So you've got self-control. And then supplement that self-control with steadfastness. So steadfastness, some of your translations will say patience. This is not patience. Patience is a passive thing. Steadfastness is an active thing. Patience is kind of like saying, I'm going to wait here until the mountain is climbed. Steadfastness is, I'm going to climb the mountain. And even when it gets difficult, I will continue to walk step by step by step. I will continue to climb the mountain. So steadfastness here, hippomone, steadfastness, perseverance, and it's the ability to withstand hardships. So you've got self-control, right? You, you've decided you're going to control these desires. The next step that you add to this is length of time. I'm going to continue to go forward. I'm not just going to control my desires for five minutes, but I'm going to control my desire for a week. This is a huge process of maturing. There's a reason why kids have a hard time with steadfastness. With their underdeveloped brain, I shouldn't say underdeveloped, but not yet developed brain. <laughs> that time frame is difficult for them. Our youngest, five minutes feels like an eternity. Really, five minutes? That's going to be like 500 days. I'm like, no, it's not even close, but okay. Steadfastness, the ability to withstand, to keep going, to endure. Now, both self-control and steadfastness, they work together, right? You're going to control those desires for a length of time, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how much it hurts. 
but it will pay off eventually. So I also think about when my kids, one of my kids hates beans, or I should say hated beans, refused beans. And so Jen and I decided that anytime we had beans for dinner, which I love beans, by the way, so anytime we would have beans, which was quite often because I love beans, he had to at least eat one bean. That's it. One bean. And we wanted to do that because, you know, every time he ate a bean, we figured that would start developing that taste, and, and eventually he would eat beans. So one bean. And he would sit and stare at that bean. And I'm telling you, I, did, I wanted to do almost anything else with my life at that hour of day then watch him watch a bean. But I knew eventually the steadfastness would pay off. As I watched him watch the bean, eventually, I mean, I don't even think he tasted the bean. It would be in and out of his mouth so quick. But eventually he'd eat the bean. That would happen two, three times a week. And then one day, he decided he likes beans. Now we have a son who eats beans. And I can't tell you how happy I am with it. It paid off eventually, right? So it's, it's having this knowledge or having this uh, ability to withstand and to sit and to continue to go forward no matter what. You will continue to work. So the question is, I have the knowledge, I have the discipline, now can I last? And as we look at these ascending steps to growing in grace, we can kind of start to pinpoint where we're going wrong, right? So when you fail, when you absolutely fall apart, instead of beating yourself up and going to that dark room of shame and saying, now i got to earn God's grace back, you can kind of look at these steps and you can say, wait, where am I going wrong? How have I messed up? When we stagnate in our Christian walk, and we're no longer growing in grace, and we don't feel like we're growing in our relationship with God, we can look back and we can say, okay, where am I going wrong here? Am I giving up on this virtue? Am I giving up on this essence? Do I no longer even want to live the essence that God has called me to? Or, Or maybe you still have that essence, but you just need to be reminded, this is who God has made me to be. And so then you can say, but do I have the right knowledge? Okay, so I still want the essence. I've got the right knowledge. What's going on? Am am I not controlling my desire? Maybe I'm letting my desires control me. Or maybe it's that I have lost step. And I'm not being steadfast anymore. A couple years ago, some of us guys, we went and hiked the Grand Canyon. We did rim to rim. We did three days. We had backpacks on. And a couple of us were a little bit out of shape. You know, we could have been in better shape. But so, but we, you know, you get down into the bottom of the canyon, and you got to go back up. <laughs> and we're going back up, and we're going back up on the north rim, and it was slow going. But you knew you had to keep going. And so, one of us decided that he was just going to slow his pace. And he took one step, and he'd take a break. Next step, take a break. Next step, take a break. This was slow going, but he made it to the top. He made it to the top. Some of us are running sprints, 
and you're not thinking about steadfastness. You're running a sprint and you're burning yourself out. And now you're getting to the point where you just want to sit out. And the solution isn't sitting out. The solution is to slow your pace. You don't have to do everything in this world. You can trust God to get things done that you can't. But you can keep walking slowly, trusting Him to continue to supply your every need. So we, we supplement knowledge, or self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. Here's another term that seems general and so we don't quite know how it works out, right? Godliness is eusebia, and it, it's translated as godliness. It's a devout practice for God, or uh, living with Jesus at the center of your life is how I like to put it. It, it really is a, a religious term that refers to uh, letting religion have every aspect of your life. So we'll put Jesus at the center of your life, right? Too many of us have a secular and sacred division in our life. So we go to church, and we're really all gung-ho about God at church, and we raise our hands during worship at church, and, and we love God at church, and then on Monday, well, I don't want to cause a stir at my work. Kids have been acting up, and Jesus just is no longer the focal point. Godliness is saying, God, Jesus is going to be the center of everything. There's no longer a sacred and secular. It's all sacred now. Jesus is going to dictate every aspect of my life. Whether it's my dating life, whether it's my school, whether it's my work, Jesus is going to be the one to call the shots. That's what this godliness means. It's living with Jesus at the center. You never leave Jesus behind. And so some of us, we get through this, and we're even at steadfastness. Yes, I'm going to continue to keep putting one foot in front of the other on Sunday morning. And you volunteer on Sunday morning. You might make it to Juana on Monday night. But there are other aspects of your life. Maybe it's your entertainment life. I mean, Christian music is edifying, but is it really that good? So I'm going to go ahead and never listen to anything edifying, but I'll just listen to the secular. Maybe it's your television show. And you know that maybe this isn't something you should be watching, but you know, you had a rough day, so I'll go ahead and watch it because it's very entertaining. So you've been walking with steadfastness in certain areas, but you still haven't let Jesus be the center of your life. And so you begin to stagnate. And you don't know why your relationship with Jesus isn't growing. You wonder why you're returning to the sin that's got you over and over again. Well, if every other step in this process is pretty good, 
then it might be that you have an area in your life that you're not letting Jesus touch. So the question here is, is there any area of my life that I have not given over to Jesus? Am I holding something back? So we supplement steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection. You'll recognize this word very easily. It's Philadelphia, brotherly love. Now, oftentimes, we, we make agape the greatest love, which I, I do think it is. But then, because it's the greatest love, we kind of downplay all the other loves. But that's not so within the New Testament. Brotherly love, Philadelphia, is still a, a valued love. Now, we have to give this disclaimer because our language does us a disservice. We use love and it's overused, right? So I love mountain biking. I already said I love beans. I love my children. I love my wife. You know, we could go on and on about the things we love. But none of those loves are the same, right? There is no way on earth beans should be loved the same way I love my wife. That's wrong. Just shouldn't happen. It's weird. But there's other loves within that too. My, my love for my wife is not the same love that I have for my kids. Those are different loves. But we have this one generic term, love. So it's nice in the Greek. They've got different terms for different loves. This here is brotherly love, which is more like a deep affection for something or someone. It's a deep affection for, meaning you have an emotional regard for someone else. Now, I know a lot of people that have had this love. There are a lot of parents that have this love for their children, and yet they fell when it comes to agape. We'll get to agape in a second. But just because we have this love and fell in agape, one of my mentor pastors used to say that he knew his dad loved him. He said, without a doubt, my dad had a deep affection for me. But if we were ever in a lifeboat that would only fit one, you better believe I was the one that was being tossed out. And so because we see people that have deep affections for other people and yet totally fell in agape, we start to write off this deep affection. And yet, here it is in Scripture, right? Deep affection, having emotional regard for someone, is important. And I would say that this is the beginning of the harvest. So we've been going through these steps, these ascending steps of growing in grace. And he's not just giving us these steps just to give us steps. But there is a harvest that will be reaped. And having a deep affection for others is part of that harvest. Now what's cool about the, the biblical deep affection is it's no longer just based on someone else's personality. So I love my wife for several different reasons, but one is she, I think she's just got an amazing personality. If you don't know my wife, uh, truly know my wife, and you get to know her, you will find she is incredibly funny, incredibly smart. She's a little bit introverted, so you don't always get to talk to her. But, but man, there's, for me, it's so easy to have a deep affection for her. There are some other people that if it weren't for Christ, I wouldn't have a deep affection for. And I guarantee you know some people like that as well. 
some people in your life where if they never talked to you again, you'd be cool with that. That is man's natural way of interacting. As we go through these ascending steps and God grows you and matures you in His grace, you can begin to have a deep affection for people that just bother you. You can have a deep affection for those people that you find annoying. Deep affection shouldn't just be reserved for those that you naturally click with. So, there's deep affection. This is the beginning of the harvest. Because when you start to have deep affection for people that annoy you, you're, you're glorifying God with that. So then we go to the next step. Here we go. The last one is love. And this term is agape. It's love. And it means choosing to do the right thing for the other regardless of the cost to yourself. Choosing to do the right thing for the other regardless of the cost for yourself. So when I sat there with my son watching him watch the bean, you could say that might be some agape there going on, right? I'm choosing to do what's right for him. I didn't want to sit there and watch him watch the bean, but I chose to sit there because I knew one day that would pay off. One day that would help him grow. Sometimes this consists of telling people difficult things and you know they're going to be mad at you for this thing. You know they're just going to like shake their fist, but you know that they need to hear it. And so you say it, knowing it's going to cost you. But you're going to do it out of love for them. So this is agape, choosing to do the right thing for the other, regardless of the cost to yourself. And this is the consummation of the harvest, right? So the benefactor here is being glorified by the product. The benefactor being God. So God has supplied everything you need in this life. And as you walk these steps, and when you fail, you go back and you say, so where did I fail? What, did I not want to live out this essence? Did Maybe I, maybe I was following the wrong teaching. Maybe I was uh, not having self-control. And as you walk these steps, and you get to agape love, not just deep affection, but true love for someone else, where you're willing to sacrifice your own for them, you are glorifying God you are glorifying the benefactor by this product of your agape love. So this is the roadmap. This is how we get to grow in God's grace. And then he continues, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I need to break this down a little bit. First of all, in the Greek, the, the, for if these qualities, if is not there, and it's actually phrased as an imperative. So I don't think we should read this as an if-then statement as much as a command. So we should read it as, you are being commanded to walk these qualities out. You are being commanded to bring these qualities out in your life. The benefactor has already supplied them for you. Now you're supposed to put these qualities to work. So as you put these qualities to work, they're yours and they're increasing, meaning you're growing in these. You continue the walk. You continue to keep growing. They will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful, meaning that if you're not walking this out, you won't be effective. You won't have fruit. 
in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, here we see that word knowledge is epigonosco, meaning an intimate knowledge of. So if you're not walking these steps out and you're stagnant in your walk, this is why. If you're stagnant in your relationship with God, this is why. You're not walking out the steps. You have walked so far, maybe. Maybe you've gone so far as to say, this is the correct knowledge, and and, and I'll have self-control over every part of my life except for this one. Then you're going to be stagnant. Your relationship with Christ will not continue to grow. So this is how we grow in Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. This term blind means self-blinding. So if you're, if you lack these qualities, if you're not working in these qualities, then you're blinding yourself. No one else is blinding you. You're doing it to yourself. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So what are you blinding yourself from? You're blinding yourself from the fact that Jesus, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, He removed you from being dead in your trespasses and sins and placed you in a position of being alive together with Him and He has made you holy, blameless, spotless, righteous. You are those things. And when you're not walking in these steps, you're blinding yourself to the position that Christ has put you in. Therefore, Because of this, because you have the roadmap, and because you can grow, and because if you don't follow these ascending steps, you won't be growing. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And I think what he's getting at here, this term fall means to stumble. I think what he's getting at here is when you do your part, the benefactor has done his, When you do your part, you will no longer be controlled by sin. Sin will no longer abound in your life. Does that mean that you will never sin again? I don't think so. I think you will mess up. But you won't be controlled by it. It won't abound in your life. Instead, grace will abound in your life. You will continue to grow in grace. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance to the, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What's interesting about verse 11 is it really forms what's called an inclusio here. And so this term provided is the same term that we get supplement from. So it's that same word used for chorus. And what essentially is he saying here is that he's saying, for in this way, the way that the benefactor has supplied all of your needs, you will be richly, he will richly supply this one last need for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. So what he's saying here is basically this. When you follow these steps, you're going to continue to grow in God's grace. And at the end, at the very end, you can be assured of his promise that you will enter into eternal life. And that you will be fully matured when you enter into the kingdom of heaven. For in this way, the benefactor has provided everything you need. He has supplied it all. Now it's your turn to work it out. And when you fail, realize 
that you're not going back to your old self. That you don't have to come back and earn your way in somehow. You are still the same person. You are still in the same position with God as you always have been. But when you walk through these steps, you mature in that position. It's kind of like when you, are, when you get married. The day you say you are married, the day you give those vows and you sign your documents, you're married. You can't be less married. You can't be more married. You are just as married as the old couple that have been married for 50 years. They can't be less married. They can't be more married. But as you grow in your intimate knowledge, your epigenosco of each other, you grow in that marriage. You mature in that marriage. You have more joy in that marriage. But you're not less married or more married. We all know some couple that have done that, right? They've walked the steps. They've lived this self-sacrificing love for each other and they've grown in this marriage. And, and it's such a joy to see. My grandparents on my mother's side, they both grew into their 90s. They'd been married for 70 years and they loved each other. I truly believe they loved each other more in their last few years of marriage than in their first. And they would tell you that. Because they learned how to continue to grow. But I've also known other people who were married. They were not less married. They weren't more married. But they never learned how to grow in their marriage. Now, they didn't get a divorce, but they held on to a bitter and loveless marriage. And they died bitter, loveless, and lonely. Now, they weren't more married. They weren't less married. They were still married. But they never grew in that marriage. God has supplied everything for you to grow in His grace. He has supplied everything you need. You cannot be more holy or less holy. He has made you holy. You can't be more Christian or less Christian. He has made you His child. So you can be a bitter, old, lonely child of God, or you can grow in His grace and grow in His joy and grow in intimate epigenosco knowledge of Him. Dear Lord, we thank You so much that You supplied everything we need. We don't need to work for it. We don't have to strive for it. You supplied it all for us. Now we just need to live it out. And we pray as we look at these ascending steps that You've given us, Lord, that You would help us to walk these steps. That when we mess up, we can go back and reevaluate and recognize where we went wrong and how we can continue to grow in Your grace. In Your name we pray. Amen.